0: Welcome to The Decision Point, a brand new show on the Roto Underworld Radio program. It is featuring Anand Naduri. He is the NFL salary cap expert de jour. You know him from Twitter, but now you'll know him from Roto Underworld Radio. We're going to provide a unique perspective on NFL front office day-to-day operations and the decision-making process that league executives go through when they're signing free agents, when they're making draft picks, when they're engaged in contract negotiations, everything from what it's like to engage with an agent in contract negotiations to what it's like to to build a franchise from the ground up. These are the things that Anand and I are going to talk about for the next few weeks, every week. Look out for the decision point on Roto Underworld Radio. We're going to show how successful franchises are built and how franchises fail. Anand, what's up, buddy?
1: Hey, Matt. Great to be on. Great to be with you. This is something that I've wanted to do for a really, really long time. Um, And we were obviously gone back and forth kind of trying to figure out what we're going to do here and, and kind of what the best way to contextualize, you know, my experiences with the league would be. Um, and I think we've settled on a really, really cool segment. I'm excited to kind of give people maybe not the one Oh one, but the two Oh one introduction into what a GM's job actually is. Right. Cause a lot of the times it's kind of portrayed as, Oh, they made this draft pick. It's kind of weird. Or, Oh, they made this trade. That's kind of weird. Why didn't they do this? We're going to delve into all of that and kind of what makes a good GM and what makes a bad one. And then kind of who in at at some point, it may not be in this episode, but at some point we'll also get into who are the people kind of impacting the decisions that they make, right? Because it's not a a one-off decision that they're making. There are a bunch of inputs and they're the only output. So that's kind of an interesting um, landscape in sports that we don't really get a whole lot of insight into. And hopefully we'll bring that to the listeners.
0: Yeah. And you were in finance at JP Morgan, and then you took a job with the NFL vetting these signings to ensure that they meet the protocols set by the league to keep teams within the salary cap parameters, right?
1: Yeah. So, um, my background's in econ, um, worked at JP Morgan for a while. Um, and then, you know, once the NFL kind of opportunity arose, um, It actually wasn't the job that I applied for. Um, I applied for a job in the finance department, and then they were like, hey, we have this. So I kind of jumped in uh, feet first and kind of just decided to go with it. Um, And some of the experience that I gained was was really, really cool in kind of the back end insight on how these things happen. Um, because you have front offices that operate very differently, even though the job description for all 32 general managers, the description for VP of football operations, or even though the descriptions across the board are all the same for that job, the way they're executed and the way their day-to-day operations work are so different. And it's interesting to see because there are so many ways to succeed and there are also so many ways to fail.
0: And if you're the LA Rams, you have invested in a top heavy team where he said, okay, we're going to go all in on these expensive assets, whether it be Todd Gurley for a period of time, and then Jared Goff, now Matthew Stafford, but also on defense, they paid Ndamukong Su a lot of money, and then he went and won a championship somewhere else. They've now paid Jalen Ramsey top money. So it's an interesting team, and it just lost its primary back in Cam Akers. Talk to us about the decision-making That's going to happen. So the general manager, Les Snead, and the coach, Sean McVay, sit down and they talk about the impact this injury is going to have on the team and what to do about it. How do you think that's playing out right now in Los Angeles?
1: So I think that obviously losing Cam is huge because the end of last year, I think even from a fantasy perspective, the eyeball test, whatever metric you want to use, Cam Akers was going to run this backfield this year, right? It wasn't going to be much of a timeshare. It was very clear. They were invested in him, especially after moving Todd Gurley, spending a second round pick on him. They were very clearly invested in Cam Akers future. But I think the way that you have to look at this is the Rams always go for a big splash move when they can. And part of that is the LA market. Right. I mean, it's it, the Rams are the new fun team in town, but that's a Laker town. That's a Dodger town. It's beautiful all the time in Los Angeles. There are so many other things that people can go do and go care about in Los Angeles if your team isn't good. So you have to stay in those headlines, making moves like that in order to be relevant in LA. And I think that's something that isn't talked about enough. They've got to occupy market share and they only moved there recently. Don't get me wrong, the city loves the Rams. And, and they're rallying behind them. But that's kind of a big part of why you've seen these gigantic splash moves, moving off Jared Goff, signing Todd Gurley to a big deal, bringing in Brandon Cooks and Dominican Sue, Jalen Ramsey. I think what you do here, though, is learn from a past mistake. And the, the mistake that they made was wasn't extending Todd Gurley. And I I think everybody in their right mind would have extended Todd Gurley after the MVP-like season he had in 2018. But the Rams had information that other teams didn't have in terms of signing a Todd Gurley. They knew what his medical reports looked like. And they chose to sign him anyway. And that's why I would caution anybody that thinks that they're going to make some huge splash move for running back. Because when Todd Gurley started to wear down at the end of that season, they input C.J. Anderson and he took off running. So, I mean... I don't know that without Cam Akers, the Rams' run game gets much worse. The ceiling is lower. There's no question. But I don't think the floor is as low as people think it is. And you can kind of plug and play um, a running back that has requisite skills. Obviously, they believe in Daryl Henderson um, or they would have let him go. Uh, I think the loss of Malcolm Brown hurts a lot more now. Now that you're you're down depth, they're going to have to sign somebody. Um, I know Xavier Jones and Jake Funk are getting a lot of run on Twitter and on the Internet, and I know that they like those guys, but I don't know that either of them are kind of ready to handle that role yet. So I would look for them to to bring in somebody. And if you want to throw out some names, I mean, I could tell you whether or not I think they'd be interested.
0: Darrell Henderson never seized a 60 plus percent snap share last year, but Malcolm Brown sure did. Malcolm Brown was out there in most passing situations, and when Darrell Henderson was on the field, that was a giveaway that they were going to run the ball. So you had a situation where Henderson is hogging the carries while Malcolm Brown is out snapping him. And what does that mean? Well, they trust Malcolm Brown in pass protection. They trust Malcolm Brown in particular game situations where, simply put, Darrell Henderson wasn't trustworthy. And if it were a rookie, I would understand it. If it's a second-year player, it's concerning to me that he was not immediately thrust into a primary back role after Cam Akers suffered that torn rib cartilage last year. And with just Xavier Jones, who has no NFL experience, and Jake Funk with no NFL experience, and you're bringing in a new quarterback, and the oldest offensive line in the league—it's a quality offensive line, but— Andrew Whitworth's 40 years old. It seems irresponsible to not go find an inexpensive veteran that can sign for something close to the league minimum or something around what James Conner signed for in Arizona to just ensure yourself against the possibility that Darrell Henderson suffers a high ankle sprain and now you're playing Xavier Jones and Jake Funk in high leverage critical game situations in all-out blitz situations where Matthew Stafford's health is now at risk because you didn't do the prudent thing, the conservative thing, which was to bring a guy in, and it is not even aggressive. These guys don't cost anything, right? So in the free agent market, you have Duke Johnson, who I think is the most exciting, the most electric running back that's available. It's hard to say why he's still available, why Houston decided to bring in Uh, Philip Lindsay, that's a conversation for another day. The bottom line is he's available. So is T.J. Yeldon. T.J. Yeldon would be a solidifying force for depth on that roster, similar to the role he played in Buffalo last year. You also have Adrian Peterson, who Detroit felt like was worthy of a starting role last year. And all reports coming out from him are, hey, this guy still has the juice. He's the new Frank Gore. And then you have Le'Veon Bell, who did not perform well last year. It goes from Duke Johnson, and then the end is Le'Veon Bell, if we're looking at the range of free agents that are available. And I think,
1: you know, Duke Johnson's a really interesting one. Um, I think kind of his the end of his tenure in Cleveland was when you kind of got to see how he should be used, Um, kind of like the Browns are using Kareem Hunt now, where... Sean McVay loves guys when th- that can both pass, catch, run, block when you need to. Um, and and to your point, Daryl Henderson last year didn't seem to be that guy. It seemed to be kind of one-dimensional with him. But he was nursing nagging injuries too. Um, I, I kind of wonder if they give him more of that role. And obviously, they've seen him more than any of us have. I, I mean, they would know – kind of what to compliment him with. And I mean, I don't, I'm not opposed to an Adrian Peterson or, or a Le'Veon Bell signing. I mean, I think Bell probably makes the most sense given that, you know, the last two years there, there's not really, he hasn't really had to run a whole lot that, that they really haven't used him. Um, if he has anything left in the tank, I think that'd be where I'd look first after Duke Johnson. But I think another thing that, that you know, hasn't been talked about a lot is maybe you just commit to it. And bring in a fullback, you know, and just say, hey, if we're running, we're running. You're going to know we're running and we're going to run it right at you.
0: The fullback is so out of fashion. Ever never thought about that. What about them bringing in a bigger back that's on an NFL roster now by dangling like a conditional seventh rounder? Royce Freeman is a candidate to get caught. They just drafted and signed the year prior running backs that are bigger, better versions of Royce Freeman in Melvin Gordon and Javante Williams. So you would think he's very expendable for John Elway. Yep. That would be my move. So if I were Les Snead, I know that Royce Freeman doesn't have that brand equity that an Adrian Peterson or a Le'Veon Bell has for the LA market, but it's just in terms of bringing in the best value football player who would solidify the backfield, I would offer that seventh rounder to Denver for Royce Freeman, I think that makes
1: a lot of sense.
0: And if you say, "Hey, listen, you want Royce Freeman," then give us Melvin Gordon. Yeah, you just drafted his replacement. Maybe you're in a hurry to get rid of Melvin Gordon. Maybe he's a cancer. Maybe he's not showing up for training camp. Send him to us.
1: I think Melvin Gordon would make all the sense in the world if the if the Chargers would listen. Justin Jackson would be a great one for them to go chase after. Um, obviously, they've signed Eckler and they believe in him. So maybe. Well, that's another issue. There's four running backs in that Chargers backfield,
0: and teams don't want to keep four running backs unless one of them is like a Brandon Bolden special teamer.
1: Right. And I think New England's another backfield you look to. Maybe they're looking to move away from Sony Michelle. Um, the, the one that I keep hearing a lot is Jacksonville and James Robinson. And if you listen to what? Coach Meyer talk and, and anybody else, I, I just I don't see any way in which they move him. Maybe Raquel Armstead. Yeah, you could
0: see them signing a Raquel Armstead who was cut or a divine Zigbo, But, you know, James Robinson is is the number two and he projects to capture at least half the carries this year. Maybe not half the snaps. You're probably going to see ETN more, but they want James Robinson to be their hammer back. You're, you're only going to target running backs on teams where you believe that they can't keep all their quality players like the Chargers like the Broncos.
1: Yeah. And and I mean, I think the weirdest part about the people that think that James Robinson is available is the way that they talk about him. I mean, they've all but come out and said, Travis Etienne is going to be our Percy Harvin. He's going to be a toy. And James Robinson is our running back short of actually coming out and saying that that's what they're telling you. So I don't think he's on the market. I don't think he's available. Um, you know, maybe somebody that is not looking to re-sign their running back for a second contract, um, but you're going to have to pay top dollar for, for guys that are going to hit the open market next year anyway, and you may not be able to sign them. So I, I think that that of the the scenarios described, I think the the Royce Freemans, the Sony Michelles, the Justin Jacksons of the world kind of make the most sense if you're going to trade with a team to get somebody because you're not going to have to give up a lot to go get them. Um, or signing a free agent, whether it's Duke or Le'Veon or whoever it is. Um, I think that's kind of the direction you go because you're not trying to replace Cam Akers. Like that, I think that would be a mistake. If you're trying to replace your bell cow, I think that's a mistake. I don't think you can get away with doing that.
0: Marlon Mack was Cam Akers at the high school level in Florida before Cam Akers, and he also— Tore his Achilles. And before Cam Akers, he was the best running back that we know to have torn his Achilles. We know that Demarius Thomas came back from an Achilles tear successfully, thankfully. So it's very much in Cam Akers' range of outcomes that he comes back and doesn't miss much of a beat. But in the meantime, we see Marlon Mack, he was re signed. So he showed enough to the doctors and the player personnel people in Indianapolis to say, hey, you should bring me back. For a million or a million with incentives. And that's around what James Conner was paid. But he's the number three. Unlike James Robinson, he's the number two in Jacksonville. Marlon Mack's the number three. And there's nothing that he does that Jonathan Taylor doesn't do better. So I think that would be another candidate, possibly. Although Mack's not a cut candidate because he has that number three running back job secured. I think that would be the outer bounds of a trade for an existing player where you would have to give Chris Ballard a higher day three pick. You couldn't get him for a seventh rounder. You'd have to offer Ballard like a fifth rounder. And at that point, I'm not sure the Rams want to do that. I would consider it. I would do it because I can see that they don't trust Darrell Henderson. So I, I would be in the market for a running back that's available for anything from a fifth to a seventh rounder. And I think that range is Marlon Mack to Royce Freeman. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. And I, and I think that one of the things that we're going to get into, probably not in this episode, but down the line, is kind of who the GMs in the league are that know everybody's value all the time, that are always making calls. And among them, Les need is one of those guys that's making calls all the time. Just in case something like this happens, he knows what the price is going to be for a guy like that.
0: He's like a hyperactive dynasty owner.
1: Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that those are the best GMs in the league, right? Regardless of what your approach is, you need to know everything's value all the time. And in this case, I would consider if Indianapolis would do it, go ahead and give them the conditional seventh rounder. And then whichever one of Jake Funk and Xavier Jones, they would want to essentially replace him as that third running back on the roster in a developmental context. I think you could get away with doing that. And that makes a lot of sense if Cam Akers can come back. Right. Because if you've seen it with Marlon Mack, who's going to be better to help him rehab and understand what he needs to do and get him with the right people than Marlon Mack, who already did it. That's a great point. So I I think you can give up on your quote unquote development, one of your developmental prospects as a running back and get back somebody who might be a little bit older, may not have as much explosion as he did have, but he's going to be able to get Cam Akers as right as he's ever going to be. And I think that has more value than your third string running back in a conditional seventh round pick.
0: The last name that I've heard mentioned is Darius Geis. Darius Geis was cleared of the domestic violence accusation in Maryland. However, new accusations from his time in LSU, sexual assault allegations have surfaced. He seems too radioactive for any team, even a team that wants to make a splash. I just don't I just don't see it. Cowboys, Patriots, some of these teams that are willing to take chances on players that have been stained off the field. And this is a desperate situation that the Rams are in now. I still don't see it. Is there anything you know about Darius Geis and the NFL's stomach for
1: a player like him? Matt, if you had asked the same question about 10 years ago, before the whole Ray Rice video and the backlash and the consequences the league faced for not Facing what is more a human issue than a football issue head on, I think we'd be having a very different conversation. But now that that's happened, now that you have Deshaun Watson in not only the the football eye but in the public eye, you know that that's an MSNBC lead story from about a few months ago. I don't think that until Darius Geiss has done his quote unquote penance, which is probably two years from now, that anybody's even going to consider touching him and the other thing too is you know as much as as that's awful in purely a football context i personally wouldn't sign him period, regardless of the situation. I don't know that, that, that based on what we're hearing from when his time in Washington, his time at LSU, I don't know that you can get away with convincing your fan base. That's worth it. But on top of that, there's the injury history, right? So, so, I mean, it's, it's not like you're getting a Deshaun Watson who doesn't really have much of an injury history other than his rookie year. And as a football player is definitely a top five quarterback. There are so many unknowns. There are so many questions there. I think there are just too many hoops to jump through there for him to even be an option. And I can tell you that the odds are the Rams wouldn't be interested just from a character basis.
0: You run the risk reward equation on Darius Geis and you just you can't see it. You just can't see it. Yeah, I'm with you. Now, the Rams are still, with or without Cam Akers, one of the most improved teams From the offseason, because they brought in not only Matthew Stafford, but also Deshaun Jackson. The offensive line should be healthier, and they've signed Ramsey to a long-term extension, so they have their anchor corner in the secondary. This team looks ready to compete for a Super Bowl this year. When you look around the league at the most improved teams this offseason, who else besides the Rams would you consider most improved?
1: I loved what the Rams did. Obviously I'm a Rams fan. So, um, addition by subtraction in terms of they very clearly believed that golf couldn't be the guy. And, um, I think I agree with them. I think that, that, um, the dolphins game and the Seattle game were kind of the end of the road for them. Um, the jets s- jump off the page that, that organization went from probably the worst in the league to one of the better coaching young coaching staffs in the league. Um, Zach Wilson appeared to be their guy. I personally would have gone Justin Fields. That's just me. But clearly they believe in him. And, you know, it didn't cost them anything to move up and go get him. It was just they're there at number two. They took him. Um, Obviously, I think this team looks a little bit different if they had lost that 15th game and gotten Trevor Lawrence. But, you know, let that go. Um, They needed a full rebuild. And I loved what they did top to bottom. I think Woody Johnson finally gets it.
0: How is that possible, by the way, that uh, someone that old, the light finally came on?
1: I think a big part of it is Robert Sully. You can just watch him, especially when he was in San Francisco, on the sideline. And you, you can see not only does he have a brilliant football mind, but he's just got the juice. Every day that man is bringing it. And you can't, you can't kind of replicate that energy. You can't fake it. If you have it, you have it. And if you don't, you don't. And I think it's evident that, that even if this fails, it wasn't a bad idea. Right, like I think there are, there are other teams that you could say, oh, that didn't work out and that wasn't a good idea. I don't think you can say that about the Jets and everything that they've done this offseason. So they're, they're my number one team. It's no surprise to me that the number one team is also
0: the team that drafted offensive line in the mid-first round two consecutive years. Yep, That's not a coincidence. That's not an accident. If you're trying to rebuild a team from the ground up, That's the way to do it. Start with a solid foundation and then build your way up, and then you put your quarterback as the antenna on the top of the tower. This is the approach that Detroit has right now. And so if you're a Detroit fan, these are dark times, but it is darkest just before the dawn. And shedding Matthew Stafford, bringing in Penny Sewell is One of the great one-two punches of the offseason for a team that needed a full rebuild, and they're embracing the rebuild. So that's the silver lining for Detroit fans.
1: I think the other thing, too, that when you talk about Detroit, is if Goff plays well, I think you have the ability to go trade him for something and go get your quarterback in the future, which I don't think is being talked about enough. I mean, nobody expects anything from Detroit this year. We expect them and the Texans and maybe the Eagles to compete for the worst record in the league. The Eagles? yeah the eagles roster is rough
0: whoa 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 that's all right i didn't see it coming i didn't see it it's not on the show sheet there he goes one per show we're gonna get one of these surprise takes per show where you just take a team down out of nowhere
1: poor eagles man i had no idea it is rough it is. I mean, look, look at that roster. And I mean, it's got a couple names where you're like, oh, OK, you know, Dallas Goddard, Zach Ertz, Devontae Smith, Jalen Rager. You, you look at that, that list and you're like, oh, this could not be so bad. But there is a gaping thirty five million dollar hole in that roster named Carson Wentz. And if Jalen Hurts can't make up that and then some it, it's t- it's going to be tough out there. I mean, the defense is not going to be great outside of the front four. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's going to be rough in Philly this year. I, I don't I don't necessarily see them. I, they might be in the division race in week twelve, thirteen, just because of how bad the division is. But man, I, I mean, it's tough. It's tough. That roster is not great.
0: If you're an NFL team in Pennsylvania, brace yourself to finish last. Ooh, yeah. Just brace yourself to finish last if you're an NFL team in Pennsylvania because you have other teams around you in your division that are improving. The Bengals are improving by leaps and bounds. Sorry, Pittsburgh, you're not. Yeah. Washington is improving by leaps and bounds and leaving Philadelphia in the dust. So just get ready for it. It's sad. It's sad because I'm I'm a Philadelphia fan. I'm a Jalen Hurts fan, and that now I'm hearing them link to Deshaun Watson. They're they're sending feelers out. Is this just a case of Howie Roseman is like Les Sneed and the, he's one of the ones that's always just making those probing calls just to understand all the player valuations across the league, just like they could have an like an index or Rolodex of players and their values, or was that
1: a real approach? to start trade talks. I think a big part of it is nobody's going to know you have interest in a player until you contact them about having interest in a player. Cause one thing that always happens whenever a trade deal like that goes down, especially a Deshaun Watson, a Carson Wentz, when you have these big names that are moving, that are probably going to be the face of your franchise. The biggest thing that you need to understand is the other side has to figure out what they want from you. Not necessarily what they want in compensation, but what they want from you. A high first round pick next year is worth a lot more than a low first round pick next year, even though contextually they're first round picks, right? And so once you show interest and kind of let them know, hey, if this guy is available, we want him. What's it going to take? That's kind of where the negotiation begins if they want something from you, right? Because you can't go trade for somebody who doesn't want anything from you. You have nothing to offer them. In Philly's case, I think there's there's just it's a weird um Deshaun Watson's going to go for not a lot when he leaves Houston because that bridge is burned and we're all aware of the off-field stuff. Um that's a very unique case that I don't necessarily know that you can break down kind of like anything else. It's its own unicorn of a situation. Yeah. Um uh, but I mean, when you talk about Deshaun Watson, we know what he is as a football player and I think ultimately that's what matters. And risk reward Would dictate that you go try to get that
0: guy as opposed to a Darius Geis where he's just radioactive.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, and and the other thing, too, is the other thing, too, is Deshaun Watson. By the end of his contract, this is a a key piece that that people are going to forget. He signed early and that means a year from now, two years from now that contract is going to be a ridiculous value as the cap goes up and other people are paid more. So you may get Deshaun Watson as a top three quarterback in the league, granted legal issues and all, but paying him as the 10th or 12th highest paid guy in the league. And that is where his value was. Is that
0: why that phone call happened? Did someone, a salary cap expert like yourself in Philadelphia, slide that piece of paper over to... Howie Roseman with the numbers on what the percentage of the cap that would be dedicated to a franchise quarterback like Deshaun Watson in 2024 would be? Or does Howie Roseman, is he so sharp that he knows that intuitively?
1: I think it's both, right? I think Howie would know, hey, he's going to be a value. But at the same time, someone probably ran him the actual numbers like, hey, this is what it's going to cost to have Deshaun Watson. This is what it's going to cost us. God forbid Jalen Hurts balls out, right? If you have to pay, in, let's say in 2023, if you have to pay Jalen Hurts more than you would pay Deshaun Watson, that decision is ridiculous. You don't even think about that. Right, And that's what you're talking about here. What is the draft capital or whatever capital it is you're going to have to give up for Deshaun Watson worth to have maybe the third best quarterback in the league paid like the 10th or 12th best? That's where you find contract value in quarterbacks. And you've got to suck it up and accept that at some point you're going to have to pay him as the highest paid quarterback in the league. That's gonna happen no matter what, just cause he's in that echelon of quarterback. But if you can get him at a value for a year, two years, three years as the cap goes up and as other guys get paid over him, you can technically have a competitive advantage in the quarterback market just because your guy is not being paid what his value is.
0: This is why the uncertainty around Jalen Hurts is even greater than some believe. Like, oh, we you know, yeah, he only played in six games last year as the starter. He doesn't have a track record. That's where the uncertainty is. Well, no, the uncertainty is also that there's a lot at stake this year. His career is shrouded in uncertainty if he doesn't ball out, because he has to ball out to elevate the team and convince the team they can be competitive in 2022. If he doesn't, and they're looking at a more gradual rebuild, they stare at the Jalen Hurts projected extension and say to themselves, wait a second, what's the point of even having Jalen Hurts? He's actually hurting us in that he's winning a couple games for us, but by the time that we need to start adding pieces to compete, he's going to be prohibitively expensive. We need to have a roster around Jalen Hurts that's going to be competitive in 2021 and 2022, because he's going to demand an extension a la Dak Prescott. In 2023, because he was a second-round pick and we don't have that fifth-year option— the rookie contract for Jalen Hurts may never net that competitive advantage that other rookie contracts help other
1: teams achieve at quarterback. And that's exactly how you look at it, right? So another team this offseason that obviously won is Jacksonville with or without hiring Coach Meyer, who I love, who I think is awesome. They won because they got Trevor Lawrence. Why does that matter? Because if you get an edge rusher at number one overall, they're going to be incredible. Miles Garrett is incredible. Baker Mayfield is the important player on that team, because if you insert Case Keenum, that team is going nowhere. It's not. And the rule that I would abide by is tanking is not necessary. And it's, it's frowned upon, obviously, but tanking is not necessarily a bad thing as long as it's with a purpose. The, the line that I would go at is if you don't think there is a three percent chance that you can win a Super Bowl this year. You should actively be doing everything you can to acquire the best draft pick that you can get. The reason why is it's not an NBA lottery system. Getting more ping pong balls in the NBA lottery is great, but it doesn't guarantee you anything. Jacksonville losing out after winning week one last year guaranteed them Trevor Lawrence. And especially in a draft like that, when we, when we were talking earlier about a high first round pick being worth more than a low first round pick, not all number one picks are created equal. Last year's was worth a lot more than this year's is going to be. And so if you can be bad in a consistent fashion where you get draft pick after draft pick after draft pick, they're eventually going to hit. Right. And and I mean, we saw it with Houston forever ago. We saw it with you know, Jackson, you're seeing it with Jacksonville. If you can amass picks to the point where some of them are going to hit, you're at least going to get one of those 2017 Jags seasons where they went 12 and four and it looked like they were going to be the shining light in the AFC South for years to come. Obviously that all fell apart, but that's another team that I think absolutely succeeded. I think Shad Khan and coach Meyer have their, their, they're on the same page, right? Trevor Lawrence, Travis Etienne. They've got fun weapons in Chark, LaVisca Chenault. I, I mean, pick, take your pick. They've got all kinds of fun weapons on offense, and then they can build that defense around them. Tim Tebow. Tim, <laughs> Timmy, we know Coach loves Timmy. But I think when you look at Jacksonville, that's kind of the the ideal rebuild, and not everybody's going to be able to do it that way you know there are many ways to skin a cat so to speak and and this one is probably the easiest the most straightforward and i loved what they did in the off season but i don't think it was necessary necessarily difficult for them to make the moves that they did so i mean that's kind of one of the better off seasons by default i think
0: it's an interesting study in behavioral dynamics in psychology what happens inside a franchise when the incentives are in direct conflict, where the front office wants to lose, they realize that they have less than a 3% chance of winning a championship. Shad Khan wants L's, not W's. Doug Moreau needs W's to survive. If he gets fired, he's never going to get another head coaching job again. His career is at stake. And you have the players whose careers are at stake. Yep, It's not like the NBA, where they instituted this lottery after the Houston Rockets tanked to get Olajuwon, and it was obvious that players were walking up and down the court. You can't walk up and down the field in football. You're going to get hit full speed, and you could die. Yep. So player safety and contract incentives are at stake for the players on the field, and Careers are at stake for the coaches on the sidelines, so they're playing with a completely different set of incentives than those watching down from the front office. There's been movies made. Think about Any Given Sunday. The owner, Cameron Diaz, she was actively conspiring to dismantle the team while Al Pacino and Jamie Foxx, they're trying to win. When the incentives are in direct conflict, it's just an interesting how the interpersonal relationships unfold and what actually happens on the ground day to day, week to week with that team. We got three losses in a row. I'm sick and tired of this. Are you? Yeah. 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 Because if you're not, raise your hand. Come on. If you're going to act like a loser, raise your hand. You gonna act like pussy. Raise your hand. What the hell are you doing, Jay? I didn't want you to be the only pussy with his hand raised, coach, so I figured I'd help you out. <laughs> okay, gentlemen, this is where we live.
1: Right, because the thing is, you don't want your team to not be competitive, right? Jacksonville was trying to win every game last year until the clock had hit 15 seconds, and then you're trying to get an L. You can't tank
0: because these players need their next contract or else they're going to have to go work at UPS.
1: Right. And and the other thing too is, is you know, enterprise runner car sold everything off their lots. So there's not a backup career anymore. It's really, really tough as a front office exec to get your coach to understand that their performance is not what's going to lead to them being fired in that kind of scenario. It's do we think you're the right guy for the rebuild? right? Because if you're Jacksonville, it was clear last year, Doug Marone was either going to keep his job. It, it didn't matter necessarily whether he won or lost games. It mattered how they looked in winning or losing those games. And it was clear he needed to be gone, right? Also with Jacksonville,
0: it's unique in that it is very much a family business with Shad Khan and his son is involved in the operations. Yep. To me, it feels like Dallas Cowboys without Dak Prescott what does that team look like? Well, it looks like Jacksonville. Is that how you should think of Jacksonville? As multiple family members being involved reduces the possibility that there can be a strategic focus and a vision for the future? Because without that, you can't
1: have a cohesive rebuild. I think the way to look at Jacksonville is substantially different from Dallas. And the reason why is Shad Khan has stepped out of the way and hired a head coach in Urban Meyer who's going to run it like a like a collegiate football team. And that's not to say that he's going to treat them like he would treat 18 to 21-year-olds. The difference between Jacksonville and Dallas is in Dallas, Jerry Jones is judge, jury, executioner, and the court system, right? Everything goes through Jerry Jones. Now, there are benefits to that. You have one voice. Everything goes through Jerry. There's only going to be one voice that comes out of Dallas. When you're in any other franchise, it's different. And I think Shad understands enough. Hey, we need to give the people of Jacksonville something that they believe we're actually building, right? It felt like that 2017 team was a flash in the pan. And then everybody was gone. When you hire an urban Meyer and you let him handpick the staff, the only thing that I was questionable about their entire off season was Trent Baalke as the GM. But I think that that had something to do with him actually going there. It's like, hey, we have an experience. We have an NFL general manager that worked in San Francisco before. Now we can argue till we're blue in the face about how that went and and what ultimately ended that reign of terror that him and Jim Harbaugh had in the Bay. But I think one of the big differences that you're going to talk about when you talk about Jacksonville versus Dallas is. Jacksonville's going to have to take bigger swings than Dallas does because Dallas is an established brand, right? No matter what, they could be awful. They're going to sell merchandise. People are going to show up to their games. Diehard Cowboys fans exist all across the country. Die Hard Jacksonville Jaguars fans are probably in Jacksonville, right? And you're going to have to build your brand across the country as a relatively new team that hasn't had a ton of success, that really hasn't had a franchise quarterback to stake anything on, that really hasn't won anything, right? And so when you bring in someone in Coach Meyer that has suddenly it takes on a different aura. There's a level of respect there that wasn't there before. Whether or not you think he's going to succeed as an NFL coach, he succeeded at the game of football before, right? You,
0: Gus Bradley didn't have a similar resume. <laughs> Is that where we're going with this? I was just saying, dude. The juxtaposition where you go from Bradley to Marone to Meyer... It is interesting. They, they finally decided, okay, we, we need a proven leader, a proven winner, which I think is the right move so you can have a more cohesive direction and vision for the team. I like that. Yeah. It, that itself was sound organization building. However, when we start to see how these decisions get made in practice and the first pick for the Jacksonville Jaguars is a running back – who then they now compare to Percy Harvin, I start to get concerned
1: that maybe it wasn't the right move. You've got to understand, in especially when you're drafting, right? That was a Urban Meyer, Trent Balky, Charlie Strong decision to do that. Their reasoning behind it was we are going to make Trevor Lawrence feel as comfortable as humanly possible. They've got weapons everywhere. We know that. Now, they're, they're not top-tier weapons in the NFL by any means, but they're no slouches. Here's the thing. Travis Etienne has been in the same backfield as Trevor Lawrence. They've worked together for the last three years. When you give him that level of comfort, he knows where Travis is going to be. He knows what routes he likes to run. He knows how he's going to pass protect, right? The difference between giving him a James Robinson that he has no chemistry with whatsoever and giving him an ETN was apparently a big enough difference for them that they thought, Hey, let's go in this direction. Let's do this. And while the positional value is definitely not justified at all, the comfort level for your rookie quarterback might be. The concern is that
0: they don't have an analytics voice that's been empowered operating in player personnel and we're starting to see that around the league more and more that the analytics minds that were relegated to the business side of the team just working on ticket prices those are now starting to get more involved in the player personnel side of the business and those voices are becoming more empowered and the recommendations are actually making it to the card that is handed to Roger Goodell with the player's name on it at the podium, the types of players that are being selected at particular draft slots, make that a certainty. We know this is happening. It's exciting. My worry is that other teams will have an advantage on Jacksonville longer term if they're making these Travis Etienne type decisions.
1: Jacksonville's analytics department is actually pretty well staffed. Tony Khan actually heads all of it. Um, and I don't know how involved he is in the day-to-day stuff. I'm guessing not very, um, but showing up for the draft. I think one of the things is urban Meyer coached against all of these guys at some point. And that there's an element of that as well, right? Charlie Strong, Urban Meyer, a lot of these guys that came with him from the college ranks coached against these guys. They know how good they are now. do, Do they necessarily understand how well that translates to pro football? I don't think so yet. But you're not going to know what swings to take and not take until you take them. So I think in this one situation, I can kind of understand it. I still personally wouldn't have done it. But at the same time, I understand that there were a lot of factors that went into making that decision. And ultimately, it wasn't a Jerry Jones veto button, like, you know, CD Lamb, for example.
0: Right. Well, which was a great veto. Good job by
1: Jerry. Right. Bad job by the Raiders in selecting Henry
0: Ruggs before CD Lamb. <laughs> Now, when asked about analytics, Bill Belichick was famously coy, super dismissive. You don't make NFL player personnel decisions using a calculator. But most people give Belichick the benefit of the doubt that he was just trolling the media and that, if anything, he's trying to conceal just how much the Patriots do use analytics because he doesn't want others to know about these competitive advantages that they have. So why would he give the game away in front of the podium? He's too clever for that. And I believe that the Patriots are one of the most improved franchises this offseason. And some of it's because they're implementing some analytics-based decision-making. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah. I mean, they're they're on my list of the top three. Um, One of the really intriguing things that Belichick and that front office have always done is found value where other people don't. Right? So... They kind of punted the 2020 season, acknowledging, hey, we lost Tom Brady. We've got to take that dead cap hit. Let's find out what we've got. And I bet you Belichick had some backroom deals with a couple of those guys that opted out saying, hey, just don't be here. It's not worth our time.
0: Dead cap. I've heard that it doesn't matter. Can you explain dead
1: cap, what it is and how much it matters? Sure. Dead cap is essentially the portion of a player's contract that he's owed that you have already paid him that you haven't paid to the cap. So let's take the easiest example is let's say, uh, Matt gets a five year, $50 million deal with 30 million guaranteed. Not a bad life. <laughs> <laughs> Great life. Right. But, um, let's say you're given, uh, the let's make the math easy. 20 million is a signing bonus, right? And then, so essentially you're at $6 million a year after that. So 6 million split across five years. Well, in theory, in year one of your contract, we've paid you $26 million. But to the cap, depending on how you structure it, you've paid $10 million in year one. So if they cut you after year one, they owe $16 million in dead cap money. If they cut you after year two, when they've paid you $32 million and $20 million to the cap, they owe $12 million to the cap in dead cap money if you're cut. Go into year three, so on and so forth, which is why how guaranteed money is issued to a player matters a lot. Players want signing bonuses. That's it. The only money a player is ever truly guaranteed is guaranteed at signing, right? And so when you hear contracts about guaranteed money, you're talking about guaranteed money. The players and the agents don't care at all about what the quote unquote guaranteed money is. The guaranteed money at signing is the only part of that that matters. So when you talk about dead cap hits, it's a matter of exposing a bad decision you made before. That's what a dead cap hit truly is. It's we gaffed on this and some teams would rather stomach it and, you know, just suck it up and acknowledge that they made a bad decision, but they're going to stick to their guns and, and try to make it work. Or you have teams like the Eagles and the Rams that decide, hey, we screwed up. We'd rather be out now than than trot out the same guy. For next season, or the season after, or the season after that. So it's just kind of a, a a difference of opinion. Dead cap isn't necessarily good or bad. All dead cap tells you is that you made a bad decision in the past. Now whether it's a good decision to cut them now or later, that's up to you, and, and and that's really up for for debate and discussion. All it tells you is that you made a bad decision in the past in terms of signing somebody. Let's say that you're
0: the Eagles and you have all this dead cap from the Carson Wentz contract, for example. Does that prohibit you in any way? Or can you spend as much as you want? At what point does the dead cap prevent you from signing more players?
1: It changes your roster construction. The reason is Philadelphia needs to get essentially $40 million of production out of Jalen Hurts this year, right? Because the, the dead cap hit from Wentz plus what they're paying Jalen Hurts, he, they've got to get that value out of that spot. And if they don't, They've got to get tremendous value out of other spots that aren't as highly paid in the league on an average annual value basis, right? When you think about it that way, it's really difficult if your quarterback isn't playing at a $40 million level to get over that dead cap hit. And that's why the Rams bringing in Matthew Stafford for Jared Goff and giving up the draft capital is okay because they believe he is a $20 million a year upgrade over Jared Goff, even if it's just for the one year. Right. Because at, at, at that point, you know, the cap hit is gone and, and they'll be able to treat Stafford as Stafford instead of treating Stafford as Stafford plus golf. But the reason that they made that move is they believe this year Matthew Stafford can be a forty five million dollar a year quarterback.
0: Yeah. In the context of their offense right now with players like Deshaun Watson, yeah. maybe, maybe. But isn't it true that NFL teams can spend as much as they want? They can go over the cap what's preventing bezos from buying a team and just spending twice as much as anyone else
1: your your cap operates over a four year window and you had there's a there's a spending floor 89 and 95% of cash and cap respectively that you have to spend right which is why teams like cleveland when they were completely tanking and their roster was terrible were handing out ridiculous contracts to people just to get under that floor so they're not fined fined and you know T- having draft picks taken away and all of that Brock Osweiler
0: acquiring. Oh him. God.
1: Yeah. 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 There, there, there are financial reasons where it things like that happen. Um, but typically teams don't really approach the cap all that much. And I know that sounds weird to say, but there aren't teams that are up against the cap all the time. Um, it, it just genuinely doesn't happen other than new Orleans. They operate in a different Mickey Loomis operates in a different world than when the rest than the rest of us in the sense that he thinks that the cap is just essentially fairyland and we're gonna do whatever we want.
0: Why don't other teams operate that way?
1: Because other teams don't have top-tier talent at the top of their roster that that can be paid that way, right? When you have a Michael Thomas, an Alvin Kamara, a Cameron Jordan, a Marshawn Lattimore, you know, and you have a Drew Brees when you have to pay all of those guys, it makes kicking the can down the road, so to speak worth it and taking dead cat hits on guys and extending guys that maybe you otherwise wouldn't in order to free up cap space, to do whatever it is you want to do. When you have a hall of fame quarterback and a lot of guys that you want to keep on that team, that's how you have to do it. We just really haven't seen other teams have that level of talent that they have to keep around. The Rams are probably the closest, um, or the Eagles after winning in uh, what was it 2018 those are kind of the two closest that you'll see but it, it's very odd it's not something that's often replicated i mean Atlanta tried after their super bowl run um to to pay everybody but i think at that point 10 or nine or 10 players on their roster had like 60% of the cap which is outrageous They're, i mean you literally can't have anybody on a mid tier contract at that point. So it it just, it becomes a point in time where you have no depth to your roster, right? The saints are an injury away from being pretty, pretty awful at certain spots. The Rams are an injury away from being pretty awful at certain spots, the Eagles trading their quarterback away. And now suddenly that roster looks very different. It's one of those things where if you go all in like Mickey Loomis does, your window is open for much longer but your ability to compete in any given year, that it that margin is so razor thin because you have no depth on your roster.
0: The salary cap prohibits you from acquiring players with these mid-level contract values that would give you the depth.
1: Yeah. Right. So so the Rams for for great example, going back to our Cam Akers thing earlier, you know, had they not made that move for Matthew Stafford, maybe they would have signed Duke Johnson already. Maybe they would have had somebody that that, to to solidify that RB two, RB3 role behind Cam Akers, and this isn't as much of a problem. But because you have so much dead cap money in the golf contract and you have to pay Stafford, it changes the math on what you're able to do with the the middle and bottom of your roster. They're very, very, very reliant on the guys that they paid to be healthy and play that full season.
0: If the amount Duke Johnson wanted would put them over the cap, they would not be allowed to do it.
1: No. What they would have to do is probably restructure somebody, which they could do. I mean, that it's not, it's not super uncommon. Um, we'll get into it in a different episode, but the way that Mahomes' deal is structured allows Kansas City to do that over and over and over again. Um, but it, would, it wouldn't it would take a lot to get someone like Duke Johnson under the cap, but let's say they were, they were in the, I don't know if they were or not, but let's say they were in the Julio Jones sweepstakes. That would have taken a lot of meandering and would have probably required multiple cuts, a couple of restructures, but you can get pretty much, if you want to, you can get anything under the cap. The question is, what's it going to cost you over the next two, three, four years to do that? And at that point, is it worth it? The dead money is just this indicator that you made a
0: bunch of bad decisions in the past. But in terms of the active players on your roster, what they're getting this year, it has to be under the cap period.
1: Yeah. And and obviously, you have carry over year to year. Like I think the Colts carried over $30 million or something crazy like that from last year. Um, but over that four-year period, yes, you have to be under the total amount of each cap over those four years. So it'll reset in 2022 one in 2022. And then you've got TV money coming, I think 2023. So if you have, a, here's a, just a quick tangent. If you have a guy that you believe is a franchise quarterback, you have to do everything you can to sign them this upcoming off season. before the TV money comes in in 2023. Right. Because if you gamble on a franchise tag, going this is a 2022 franchise tag. If you gamble on that franchise tag, that price just went up 20%.
0: Oh, this is another reason why the Eagles are staring at Jalen Hurts going, do we really even want you to be
1: good? No. It's crazy. Objectively no. That's crazy. Objectively no. And and, and the thing is if you're Philadelphia, your best case scenario right now is that Jalen Hurts is bad. You get a couple of high draft picks, and next year your quarterback is Aaron Rodgers or Deshaun Watson. That's best-case scenario. That's ideal. Uh, this was a coffee cup,
0: usual suspects, coffee cup dropping moment for me. Thank you, Anand. Thank you. Uh,
1: and it's and it's weird to think about that way, right? Because you're like, oh, no, I want my team to compete because nine wins may win the division. You don't want to win the division if you're Philadelphia because your odds of winning a Super Bowl are zero, not point one zero Zero, zero. Oh, they should not have drafted Devontae Smith. They should have gone defense. Right? <laughs> and and the thing is, like, even if Jalen Hurts, let's say he balls out, has a Lamar Jackson year and wins MVP. Oh, no. That is worst case scenario for you because you can't pay him. Worst case scenario for the Eagles is that Jalen Hurts is what the best version of what fans think he is, right? Because Lamar Jackson has an entire offense built around him. Jalen Hurts is stepping into an offense that was built for Carson Wentz that's going to take them years to rebuild around his skill set. Jalen Hurts is stepping into an offense that was built for Carson Wentz that's going to take them years to rebuild around his skill set all
0: right we're going to go out on that by the way, we're going to go out on that because that was a perfect punctuation but for the outtakes let's dig in a little bit to the Patriots so we talked about the Patriots being one of the top three most improved we talked about the Jets the Jags already most improved number three was the Patriots give us a little more detail about why you're so impressed with the Patriots this offseason
1: So I think one of the things that Belichick gets a lot of flack for as a GM is you talk about his inability to draft wide receivers, right? Or develop them or however you want to go about that. But the man understands better than anyone else in the league what he doesn't do well. And what he did in 2020 in terms of punting the season, figuring out what they had in Cam Newton, rebuilding their entire offense in the offseason because nobody else had money to spend, right? Right. When everybody zigs, the Patriots zag. They've done it forever. When everybody was going to power run, they spread the ball out in 07 and threw the ball all over the yard. When everybody caught up to them in 2011 and 2012, throwing the ball all over the yard, they went back to power run. As soon as everybody adopted the two tight ends, they brought in quicker, faster guys as teams were bringing in hybrid linebackers and bigger guys to deal with these tight ends on a physical basis. Then in 2014, 2015, 2016, they became the predominant team that was you know, emphasizing pass-catching running backs, having a bunch of guys, no bell cow, and now everybody's doing that. Everybody's got a squadron of running backs. Everybody has a Shane Vereen. Right, and now this offseason... What they realized is nobody is going to pay tight ends like they're wide receivers. So if we can play them like they're wide receivers, what we're going to do is we're just going to pay essentially wide receivers, top tier tight end money. And if they're worth that or more, we win.
0: And the league has transitioned to defenses to counter the air raid offense Defenses are are sneaking extra safeties and corners onto the field constantly. And Bill Belichick's just putting his foot down going, no, it's time to zag again. Right. Let's let's force them to play their fringe linebacker against us, and that's the guy we're going to pick on.
1: Well, the other thing, too, is let's say you're number one and number two corner, right, or even your slot guy. Ideally, if you have three really good corners, like let's say you're playing the Rams, who do you put on Hunter Henry? You can't put a slot corner on him. It's going to be a fun team to see how things play out with those two tight ends.
0: Especially Jonu, right? He's like an H-back. I think that Bill Belichick loves the H-back, and I think he sees Jonu as a possible H-back solution. And I think that's going to be fun to watch. But I think for fantasy, Hunter Henry is the better value. Yeah. Because he is a traditional two-way tight end, and he's going to thrive without much target competition. Final question get you out of here for the outtakes when does mac jones start
1: i think i don't i hate to predict injury but i think cam gets dinged up at some point and he probably starts week 10 week 11 um but i don't think he takes control of that job until 2022 I don't think you have a a scenario like like Justin Herbert last year where he gets a chance and it's just like, oh, that's the guy. I think Mac will get an opportunity at some point this year to start a game or two just based on Cam's health. Um, but I don't think that that the job is his until 2022. I, I, I don't think that they'll – they're not going to put him in that situation.
0: I think that Cam Newton will be the fall guy for the blowout loss against the Buccaneers in Week 4. Who ooh. ooh. and that they are going to ease Mac Jones in by starting him week five against the Houston Texans.
1: Ooh. Hey, I mean, I I don't disagree with that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I just, I think Cam Newton's going to do well enough that they're not going to be able to do that. But this is just free money. Uh, Free money. Start Tom Brady and every Tampa Bay receiver in Daily Fantasy that week, because, I mean, they're going to... wow. If there's anybody that can beat a Bill Belichick defense like a drum, it's Tom Brady. Because I'm sure in 07 and 08, Bill was screaming in practice for somebody to stop that offense.
0: Those first four weeks are brutal. They play the Dolphins, they play the Saints, they play the Buccaneers.
1: (laughs) Ouch. Cam is going to be under duress. Oh, man. But the other thing, too, is... Um, I don't know if you watched the, the, um, uninterrupted, uh, special that he did where he was talking to a, a few guys, but he was telling them like, this is the first time that he's been legitimately healthy since probably 2016, 2017. And I mean, if he's honest about that, which I can't see any reason why he wouldn't be right. Um, nobody's going to tell you they're fully healthy until they're fully healthy. Um, you would just say, oh, I'm feeling pretty good or, you know, whatever the, the story may be, but I it's a weird fit, honestly. Um, I don't know that, that Cam Newton's skills... It's never made sense. And, I mean, maybe with the tight ends, because he had such a relationship with Olson. maybe the tight ends and the run game with everybody coming back will will be enough. Um, but I just... It, it's its tough for me to see um, him lasting into 22 and 23 in New England. I think that's going to be Mac Jones' team. Sir, we did a good job.
0: I can't wait to edit this tomorrow. I'm going to have fun.
1: Because I was the kid that was playing Madden until 2 a.m., you know what I mean? Right. And, I mean, that, that's all of us. Um, but, you know, to make something out of that is kind of cool. The fact that any of this is possible is really cool.
0: Yeah, the fact uh, that you can go from J.P. Morgan finance to be able to leverage that skill set in a football context in sports where it's fun to think about money in the context of how teams can build a champion. And how that money can be used to go bring in Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski and Andamikan Sue and win a championship—it's
1: cool. It's—I it, think the really cool part about it too is it doesn't have to be always like a monetary context i think it's important that we don't have especially in the league right you have purely analytics guys purely finance guys you have pure football guys i think it's more important that you kind of take a piece from each of them cuz nobody's empirically right all the time right i mean there you, you can't tell a coach that they don't understand their players better than you do you also at the same point got to understand hey fourth and one you should almost always go for it right like there there's a there's a weird confluence of factors that kind of impact who's right at any given moment. And I think the fact that, you know, in our space, you've got kind of three different people that think they're empirically right all the time is funny. Obviously it's, it's, it's interesting, but you know, what can you do?
0: Oh, I'm reading an article about possible options for the Rams. I had forgotten about TJ Yeldon.
1: Ooh, that's a fun one.
0: That is he's, a fun one. he's out there. He's not bad. No, I actually, that pickup makes a lot of sense. TJ Yeldon makes sense. I think Duke Johnson makes a little less sense because he's more of a satellite back. So I would think they would want a running back with
1: size. Yeah, I would think so too. Um, I'm ready to go whenever you are. By the way, I just it took a second to pull up, but I'm just going to start, describe the show, introduce you,
0: and we're gonna we're just gonna go. Let the let the audience know what's up.
1: Let's do it. And obviously, you can chop and edit if we need something.
0: But... Well, yeah, I'm going to edit it tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna get like I said. We're gonna add some music. We're gonna do some things, but and and if there's a mistake, if you make a mistake, like you flub a word or something, um, I will edit it. Like so, I'm tracking these things, and so uh, you, no one will ever know because it's not video. Like no one will ever know if you if you so if you make a mistake. Here's an idea. Here's something to do. If you say like, um, the Ram signed in suit, excuse me, the Ram signed in suit, right so you should stop and restart the whole sentence okay you see what i'm saying yeah that in editing it's way easier than you saying "In Dam- indomicon sue yeah to you that may be like oh i've minimized the damage but it's easier to cut and chop but from an editing standpoint it's gonna be easier if you just begin the sentence over again okay that makes sense yeah, if that happens, it's going to happen at some point. So if okay. it happens, just just pause for a second. If you feel like it, if you want to keep going, if you're in the flow, keep going. Okay. But if you think that, oh, I want to do, th- I want to say that again, then you can just start the sentence over again. Okay. Cool.
1: Yeah, the Eagles roster is rough. You're going to
0: get hit full speed and you could die.
1: You know, Enterprise Runner car sold everything off their lots. So there, there's not a backup career anymore. If
0: you're an NFL team in Pennsylvania, brace yourself to finish
1: last. Timmy, we know Coach loves Timmy. What's
0: the point of even having Jalen Hurts? He's actually hurting
1: us. But there is a gaping $35 million hole in that roster named Carson Wentz.
0: Oh, this is another reason why the Eagles are staring at Jalen Hurts going... Do we really even want
1: you to be good? Objectively, no. That's crazy. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh.